0: to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect
1: is not about that scoreboard out there.
2: This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal.
1: We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again.
2: Your defense has got to be better.
1: We've no doubt for nothing. Great moments are born from great opportunity.
0: My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this show is Masadis Tafe Cooper. Merck, as she prefers to be called, has won European and world championships in kickboxing. She is also a registered psychologist, has a degree in sports and exercise science, and is an international boxing coach with over 40 years of coaching experience, having worked with boxers ranked in the top 10 in the world in their weight divisions. Merck was born in Ireland, but now lives in Australia, where she runs the very successful Counterpunch program. Counterpunch utilises a mix of performance psychology, sports science and boxing to teach teenagers the life skills needed to manage emotions such as stress, anxiety, anger and depression. Merck shares her insights on working with youth athletes and young people and as a parent I have already started applying some of her ideas. The highlights of our discussion for me were the difference between the adult and adolescent brain and why tone of speech is therefore important, the importance of connecting your request as a coach with the athlete's value world, and normalizing the stress of competition. It's a great interview. It's a little bit different, and I hope you enjoy it.
1: The Great Coaches Podcast.
0: So, Masadas, it's lovely to meet you today. How are you? I'm good.
2: Thank you. And can I start by asking, where in the world are you today? I am in the Adelaide Hills in South Australia, Mount Barker to be exact. And it's uh, a little bit chilly and wintry, but uh, it's still a beautiful part of the world.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation with you very much today because you've got uh, a very interesting background covering psychology, boxing and kickboxing. And I hope we get into all of that as well as your work with um, at-risk youth. But I'd like to sort of start by talking to you about a quote that I I read when I was preparing for today. And you said, the first time I connected with myself was through physical exercise, specifically boxing. I found that it facilitated the connection between my mind and body and ultimately connection with my spirit. So I'd like to ask, how were you introduced to boxing?
2: Well, my first introduction to combat sport, if you like, was was probably martial arts. So I would have been introduced to kickboxing long before I started being involved in boxing. But primarily boxing became my pathway or my passion because I basically couldn't kick to save my life. So back then there was no boxing for females. So it was the only thing we could do. But as soon as females were allowed to box, that's kind of what I wanted to do. But unfortunately, at the time, the upper age limit was 35. And they brought in the first female world championships when I just passed my 35th birthday. So that was a bit depressing. (laughs) Now, it is, of course, it's 41. So I could have done it. But... um, when I moved to Australia, actually, because obviously I'm Irish, but when I moved to Australia, I discovered master's boxing. So I was able to do to fulfill my uh, bucket list, if you like, and actually compete in boxing. Um, and now I coach boxing and use it as a medium boxing and martial arts because my sort of target audience, if you like, in terms of training facilitators are in fact combat coaches but ultimately obviously um, teenage boys in particular are the target of uh, of what I do. It would have been when I was 17 back in the day of Bruce Lee and all those guys that uh, I first started martial arts or karate traditional karate with a guy called um, Michael Clancy and uh, Gary Salter and then I sort of transitioned into kickboxing with a a guy uh, who became, ultimately became my my main coach in kickboxing, Michael McDermott. And then um, ultimately from there, around 92, I started uh, getting involved and started St. Joseph's Boxing Club. Um, probably one of the major influences then would have been, obviously, Michael Carruth winning the Olympic gold medal. And uh, uh, Nicholas Cruz subsequently doing a tour of the country with workshops and, and sort of Giving us an insight into the science of boxing, if you like, and uh, probably a tribute to him was the main reason why I went on to do a sports science degree because he did sort of teach me for the first time about the actual science of boxing as a sport. And yeah, so still, still going strong, still, still coaching.
0: And now you've brought all of this energy and all of this learning into the counterpunch program that you've set up to coach at risk youth boxing in south australia could you tell us a little bit about that program
2: can i, can I just interrupt you for a second there paul sorry to, to to cut across you but i i do have an issue when you say at risk young people because it's not actually targeting at risk because the initial funding came through suicide prevention when I first started the program. And the ironic thing is that the kids that uh, unfortunately suicide are not at risk as such, you know, they haven't been identified as such less than 3% are within the mental health system. So, for me, I work with youth, period, not at-risk youth or youth who, you know, are, are perceived as being troublesome or having had trauma or anything else. I mean, they, they, that well may be the case, but there's a huge amount of young people who don't sort of fit into that at-risk criteria who still fall through the cracks one principal at uh, school in darwin actually described it as the kid who you know swinging on the back of the chair in the back of the classroom who doesn't call any attention to themselves but who isn't engaged either and those are the kids that uh, you know that big cohort in the middle if you like are the kids that 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 uh, i like to focus on because i think there's the potential there to actually make the biggest difference i think there are a lot of services out there for for the sort of really what you might call high-end kids and obviously i'm very supportive of anything that can help those kids too but i think that from a difference making point of view and from what i do with counter punch it's very much an early intervention stroke prevention program so it's just kids it's it's that age group teenagers adolescents and uh i would say specifically boys because in the time i've been doing it it's boys that 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 fit the that, that sort of most respond and most uh, get the most outcome from from the program and the physical nature of it
0: can you tell us about the program and, and what it entails
2: oh how long is your podcast <laughs> um, so basically counterpunch came about i guess as a um, as an involvement, if you like, from my involvement in martial arts, in boxing, ultimately in completing a sports and exercise science degree and going on, um, and at the same time, a psychology degree. And when I um, finished my sports and exercise science degree, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to do a PhD, which at the time was going to be on... um, sort of the effect, the psychological effects of injury on elite athletes. But one of the things I had to do in order to complete the research was to find an empirical questionnaire that, well, like it says, was, was empirically validated, so it was recognized as an authentic way to to do the research. And as as a result of that, I ended up doing a week-long course, if you like, in, in um, reality therapy, which is a branch of psychotherapy. It was developed by a guy called William Blasser, and uh, I just fell in love with the whole concept of reality therapy, and to me, it just made so much sense that uh, I, as a result... I actually gave up uh, that scholarship. I didn't finish my PhD. I sold the house I grew up in and I emigrated to Australia. So it had a, had a slight impact on my own sort of life, potentially because I was approaching 40, I guess, maybe at that stage where there were a lot of endings in my life in Ireland. And uh, it was uh, a good time to sort of do something completely new. And I had a brother in Melbourne. I always loved Australia. And it was something that, that I just made a decision to do. Uh, probably primarily because of the weather, if I'm honest. But um, I just sort of, you know, when I when I came to Australia, you know, after, you know, a little while, it took a while for my visa to come through, which I'd been kind of, you, you know, it took two years from then for me to actually move to Australia with the visa and all that sort of stuff. And uh, to cut a long story short, I ended up doing a, a – a, um, Masters in clinical psychology at a university in in Hobart in Tasmania because I kind of ended up in Tassie and loved it. Um, And I did clinical purely because it was the only one that would have got me national recognition to get my registration as a psychologist. I didn't really have an interest in clinical psychology, to be honest. I'm a behavioral psychologist. That's what I see myself as. But uh, it was certainly a learning experience. And during that, I had to do a PhD, uh, sorry, a, a thesis. So I decided to use my uh, reality therapy um, and, and boxing to sort of start to create what was the genesis of Karen Punch. Did some research. One of the main outcomes from the research with the group of young fellas sort of around 12, 13 was that... The practical element was hugely impactful and hugely important in the outcome of the program. So that was basically, as I said, the genesis of Counterpunch. And then as part of my research or part of my qualification as a psychologist, I had to do placement. And uh, one of those placements was a teenage placement and an adolescent placement, if you like, working with adolescents and uh, in the course of all this of course I also met my husband who was in the army so I ended up in Darwin because that's where he was posted to. I was there for about six months with a private practice and I potentially had no adolescent clients so I was in the wrong the wrong placement. I ended up working with the Child and Adolescent Mental Health um, with the Department of Health in, in, in Darwin and you know through a series of Discussion and sort of pushing and pushing and pushing. I eventually got funding to basically trial counterpunch as a program in the gym and all the rest of it. And uh, then when we got it going, Menzies um, School of Health did a further masters research on counterpunch. And uh, the outcome, the the interesting thing was there was very little empirical research on youth resilience training or youth resilience programs. But I guess the Basis of the program is a combination of using the physical medium of boxing or just exercise, but the idea of actually getting boys to do stuff physically uh, combined with the tenets of reality therapy and choice theory and, and sort of the psychology and my own experience of working with young people to kind of create a program, which has since, like, I moved to SA in 2015 and it's evolved, you know, a long way since then, and now I work for myself with my own um, company, Counterpunch uh, PTY, and and, uh, yeah, I'm working for myself, uh, working in private practice with young people, transitioning them into groups, uh, running the Counterpunch program as it was set up to be run, um, and about to launch um, the facilitator training for combat coaches so they can actually graduate groups of kids through their gyms in their own facilities, because again, a long process of trial and error because I did a lot of workshops with health workers and teachers, all of whom benefited the feedback was being all positive, to be honest. But my mission, if you like, is to get as many teenagers as possible through the program, you know, throughout the world. And I think the best network for me to do that and the best, I guess, you know, it's 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 funny how you can't see what's obvious until it's slaps you in the face, but combat coaches are who am I know best because I am one and have been for 40 years now, so potentially they were the people I should be working with right from the start because I can't duplicate myself. I still run the program and work all the time with the kids, but, you know, I'm in Mount Barker. There's only so much of a radius I can cover, so I want to make sure that it, it gets out. I've already got people qualified in Ireland, but uh, we haven't yet got the program running the way I want it to. But we're making a big drive towards that now. Obviously, there was a massive amount of things to put in place and uh, a bit of financial requirement as well, which, which hopefully we're sort of getting, with, getting there with now. And uh, I think in the next year, you're going to see a lot more of Counterpunch all over the place
0: if someone's if a coach is listening to this and wants to fold in some elements of reality therapy to what they do how would you advise them to go about that
2: well reality therapy is very much about being you know looking at what's happening right now in the present it's It doesn't focus on the thinking, it focuses on the action. So basically, if you want to change how you feel, you must change what you do. And the doing needs to be something that basically meets your needs. And in most cases with teenage boys, in my experience, the needs that least being met is what Lasser termed or defined as the power need, which is basically that ability for a young person to achieve intrinsic satisfaction and do something that basically makes them feel good without necessarily needing anybody else to contribute to that. And that can be as simple as finding a hobby that they enjoy doing or just doing something that gives them that sense of achievement and progression. And for me, in my experience with the young people that I work with, uh, boxing, combat sport is one of the best ways to fulfill that criteria, but I've had a lot of kids who've come through the program who've then gone back to play their sport, whatever it be, rugby, or in some cases when I worked in schools in Ireland, all I simply did was got the young people to get involved in a sport in the first place or a hobby, something that literally represents their happy place. When you think about it, as an adolescent, you probably have the least amount of power that you will ever have in your whole life. Because, you know, from when you get up in the morning, you're told where to go, you know, what to eat, what to wear, what time you got to be at school, when you can have a break, when you can eat, sit still, shut up, listen, present. It's a bit like, you know, you're going into a new job and you have to get used to a new environment. You have to get to know a new boss and and you just when you're starting to get to know them you have to get up and meet a whole other new boss in a whole other new environment and you do that like six times a day do you know what I mean it's mm-hmm. it's is it any wonder that so many kids can't can't cope with school because it's 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 massive amount of challenge but the biggest one is i think especially for boys is the lack of physicality you know the, 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 the i know myself and i'm a girl but sitting for 70 minutes straight is hard work and you know sitting for 70 minutes straight and shutting up is really hard work so it's um, you know I, I have to you know put a put a sort of proviso on that in saying that you know all of the teachers I've worked with have been absolutely fantastic and you know majority of teachers do want the best for the kids but in my experience everybody is struggling because they're all working within a system and the system has demands that you're always trying to do and I spent many years trying to access schools and you know I've concluded that they're basically reactionary rather than proactive they have to be they're just constantly putting out fires you know and even with the NDIS which is like a national disability program for kids on spectrum and stuff like that you know they never had an actual funding arm for early intervention or prevention it's all it's all putting fires out you know because I guess governments aren't going to focus on fixing a problem that will develop in ten years. They just want to do something that's going to happen within their four-year, four-year reign, if it's that long or whatever. So, I think that sort of prevention is is in every area, whether it be the prison service, the health, sorry, the you know the justice service, the health service, education service, whatever it is. Prevention, early intervention is the key. You know to actually teach these kind of you know the kind of stuff problem solving, sort of just resilience, all of that stuff um, because it's all repeated patterns that are happening over and over when you look at it. I, I spent two years working in a private practice and I've concluded that all of the clients that I work with are repeating the patterns that they learned when they were teenagers. So why not try and get in there early and actually teach them how to break those patterns and change those patterns early on. You know, we're very externally controlled, you know, just actually teaching people how to actually be internally controlled, be responsible just for themselves and be responsible for their own behavior. Even that in itself, is a, it would be a massive step forward. You know?
0: You've said, and this is a quote, talk therapy does not work with kids. Doing something is much better. So what advice do you have for youth coaches who are not connecting with their athletes as well as they would
2: like? Good question. I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is, from your perspective, why are you a coach? You know, what is it that is your objective? What is it that that you want? I mean, in some cases, people coach because they're trying to achieve something with the team that they're working with. You know, they're actually future oriented, looking at, well, how successful can we be? Um, I think if you're not coaching from the perspective of it being about the kids, then you're probably not in the right job. Um, I think the first thing is to connect. You must be able to connect on the level of the athlete and understand where they're coming from. Um, it's hard, especially if you're a professional coach, because, you know, it's like being a teacher, you're also within a system and you've got criteria that you have to meet. But getting the best out of a young person means that you have to try and meet their needs at the same time. It needs to be challenging. You know, there's times when you have to push them and there's times when you have to soften your approach. But the most important thing is that you have to have an open line of communication, because if you don't have both of you don't have the same information, and I'd qualify that even further by saying if both of you don't have the same perception of the same information, then the communication will break down because the first thing to break down a relationship is when both parties don't have that same information. And I think one of the key things for a coach to learn if they're working with adolescents is to understand the difference between the adolescent brain and the adult brain. For example, you and I are talking and we process words and we kind of comprehend what they are and we go from there and talk about what we're talking about. But for a young person, especially a young bloke, they don't hear the words first. Like language is probably the most primitive communication that you young people use. The first thing that a young person will will perceive is your tone of voice. And when they're at that sort of adolescent stage of raging hormones and, and, and intense um, emotion, then they tend to fly off the handle just with the slightest change in tone because they perceive it as being attacked or being, you know, you're being aggressive or you're complaining or whatever, even if it's something uh, something that, that, that you're coming from a heart center place. Like a kid comes, I mean, it works both ways, right? If you're a parent, the one thing that's going to trigger you is anything that you perceive as being a threat to your child's safety. So when I talk to the kids, I'll always tell them this is one thing that's going to trigger your parents. And this is one thing you need to understand. They know more about. You just have to accept that. They know more about it because they've lived it. You have no idea because you can't even process consequence at the moment. You can only think about now and get in the rush right now. So as simple as, you know, communicating to the kid to drop a text if they're going to be late, and then, you know, for the parent to understand that once they get that text that's okay, that they're okay, but for the kid to understand that when you walk in the door and it's like half past 10 and you were said you were going to be home at 10 p.m., your, your mom's probably going through every scenario under the sun between being kidnapped or drug-induced or driven over a cliff to being in the hospital. All of those things are going through, triggering an air or flight. So when you walk in the door, instead of saying, oh, thank God, I'm so happy you're safe, they go, where the hell were you? Because they're worried, you know, or they might say, um, you, know, you know, they might even say it in a way that's like, thank God you're home, but saying in an aggressive tone. So they're going to react to the tone. They're like, well, what's the big deal? You know, I've only, I'm only half an hour late. What's the big deal? You know." So again, it's just a lack of both people having the same perception of the same information. So sometimes simple communication is, is massive. So going back to your original question, when you're working with your athletes as a coach, the line of communication, keeping that open, I think, and making sure you're both on the same page
0: all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ms. Masada, it's just listening to you, it's, it's fascinating your view on breaking down the art of coaching into steps. But you were also a European and a world champion kickboxer before you became a registered psychologist and a boxing coach. So I'd like to ask you, Quite a broad question, but it's, what is it you, do you think that great coaches do differently?
2: Well, um, I guess great coaches, they potentially, they know how to tap into their athletes value world because especially if you're working with adolescent athletes, there's only so much processing capacity that they have in their adolescent brain and, um, Because that frontal cortex is not fully developed until they're like mid-20s. So it kind of explains why parents will tell you to do chores or do this or do that. And you're like, what the hell are they talking about? Yet You can have a conversation on on your phone with your mate and you can be listening to iTunes and listening to whatever tunes they're playing and playing a computer game at the same time. The difference being that doing the chores and putting out the bin and and taking the dishes out of the washing machine is not as high in your value world as talking to your mates and getting to the next level on the computer game. So in order for you to connect, and in order for you to get the athlete to do what it is that they need to do, you must first place what it is you're asking them and yourself in their value world. Because if what they're doing is not connected to their values, then the chance of them achieving the goal is very, very uh, slight. That doesn't mean that everything they do is value. Like I have athletes who hate doing sprints, but they do it because they're connecting it to the outcome of, you know, winning state titles or whatever it is that they're aiming for doing what they love, which in my case is boxing. So yeah, that that connection and that that ability for you to put yourself into your athlete's value world And and to be, you know, to to be uh, someone that they can trust and someone that they can approach that they're not competing or performing through fear, but competing or performing because they want you to be proud of them or happy with, you know, like, you know, they want to do it for you. I suppose the same as they want to do it for their father or their mother. You know what I mean? That's the sort of connection I believe with adolescent athletes anyway that you need to have.
0: We talked earlier about youth resilience or rather you talked about youth resilience and I think it's an issue that many people uh, want to deal with. Many coaches in particular want to help their athletes become more resilient. What advice do you have for coaches who are trying to build the resilience of their, their athletes, particularly their, their youth athletes?
2: Yeah, look at That's, that's a really um, good question. Um, I mean, that's what Counterpunch is all about. It's about helping young people to develop resilience around emotional regulation and problem solving and actually understanding what's in their control and what's out of their control. I'll be honest with you. A lot of the uh, problem can be the patterns that they're learning and have been, you know, the the parental structures around facilitating behavior. You know, I had a discussion only today with with a friend and, She's a very, you know, good parent, strong parent. And she, she was even making the remark that, you know, she's picked a school that's a private school and pays fees to, to sort of help their kids to be strong and develop character. and Walking on tender hoops, trying to keep them happy all the time. You know what I mean? Um, and, and that doesn't really serve them very well because I think, you know, Without putting too fine a point on it, I think there are a certain number of challenges young people have that weren't there when I was young. You know, I'm 55 now, so it's a little while ago. But certainly, I think that I became a stronger, more independent person by having more responsibility and by having to take care of my own stuff and fight my own battles, if you like, so... I think sometimes parents want to step in and protect their children too much, to be honest. And I understand where they're coming from, but I think that uh, it's important if you're pushing your athletes and you're trying to develop resilience, then you need potentially the cooperation of your parents, which I know is of their parents rather, which I know is always challenging for athletes because quite often, if you talk to a lot of coaches and you've talked to a few, I'm sure potentially the parents are more of a problem than the teenage athlete there can be. And that's not to say parents are bad. I really don't mean that. But parents are just repeating patterns that they've learned and they don't want to see their kids make the same mistakes. But what they don't realize is that their kids, that they've learned and become the person they are because of the mistakes they made, because of that learning process. And I think the biggest issue is that we're afraid maybe as coaches too, but we're afraid of allowing our kids to experience the consequence of their behavior. You know, I think in every situation, they can experience the consequence, except when you mentioned, we talked about before when it comes to safety, because obviously that's, that's a line we don't want them. That's why we sort of tell them that, you know, when it comes to safety, they do know best, listen to them. They've got it because they've been there, done that. But in every other thing, you know, resolving their own relationships, you know, dealing with bullying at school and stuff like that, you know, it's like, it's it's more about giving them, bullying is, is coming from being in a victim mentality sometimes, you know, if you walk around with your head down and you're afraid to look at anybody in the eye, chances are they're going to get bullied, not because... Uh, and the bully themselves potentially has been bullied. They're trying to meet their power need by projecting onto the other person. Um, I teach my young people how to respond to a bully, and nine times out of ten, they it works, you know, because the bully is often crying out for help themselves. But I'm sort of getting off track here. But in terms of resilience, I think the single best piece of advice I would give is to, in as much as possible... Allow your athletes to experience the consequence of their own behaviors.
0: Masadi's, you coach the combat sports, and I imagine there is a degree of fear that that spikes before a fight, perhaps, potentially even before training. How do you help your athletes deal with that fear?
2: When they're novice and when they're like sparring for the first time and all of that, like. You know, boxing is a very protected sport. You know, there's a lot of misinformation mis, uh, around boxing and, it you know, it's oh, it's a brutal sport and, you know, it's unsafe and I don't want my child to do it. But in my experience, boxing is one of the most medically um, pleased sports. And I'm talking about amateur boxing. You know, a lot of people confuse amateur and pro. Pro is completely different to amateur boxing. Um I don't know if you realize this, but in amateur boxing, if you ever got a concussion, you're basically banned from competing for three, from sparring or doing training, any type of contact for a minimum of three months. If it happened a second time, it's 12 months. If it happened a third time, that's it. You're banned from being able to box in amateur. I think in, you know, and I've talked to my kids that play footy, I think that there's probably on average in every, every team, there's an average of one or two concussions a week. You know, So it's like, it's it's first of all reassuring them that there's nothing to be afraid of from a safety point of view. They're wearing 16 ounce gloves, they're wearing headgear, they have mouth guards, they're sparring people matched to their ability and their weight. Um, so there's nothing for them to fear in terms of a disadvantage. It's really their journey. Like what's a better analogy for life than getting into a boxing ring when you think about it? Because it's like, the fear is never about the other person. The fear is just you pushing through your comfort zone. That's why boxing is such a fantastic way to develop confidence because once you push through that comfort zone and you get that first tap on the nose or whatever, because you know, it's boxing, you're always going to get a tap on the nose. Then it's like, Oh, and then, you know, in most cases they're loving it, you know, because they know it's not such a big deal because, you know, it's cushioned gloves and head guards and all the rest of it. So it's, um, You know, initially, I'm like, really supportive, making sure they're okay, but not, not investing in any kind of a victim mentality. You know, I think the more normalized you can make it and the more kind of offhand you can be making, you know, assuming you've already got the relationship with them then, and the less fuss you make about it, the more normalized it is, the more natural it is for them to just do it, you know? I mean, nerves is normal, but not from being afraid of what's going to happen. Most, most kids nowadays are just don't want to lose. It's kind of that kind of a thing. It's like afraid of their own performance, not afraid for their physical health. So, Just normalizing, just exposing them to the environment so it's familiar to them. We have a progression. They do a bit of sparring in their own gym. Then we take them to another gym, which is a different environment completely, and they have a few spars there, and there's much more nerve wracking in doing it there because it's somebody else's gym on their turf, and then eventually transitioning into competition. Here in South Australia, we've had three events recently, which are competition sparring, which are like like a competition, but no decisions just to get kids back into that sort of timing and stuff that because they've missed so much competition on account of the whole COVID thing. Um So I've had two young lads that have literally had their three first competition and and the progression from one to three is amazing, you know? And it's like, I think if we dwell too much on, if they start to go into victim mentality, then we don't want to encourage that. We want to just say, you know, get them onto that other level, get them out of that, because that's just their crocodile brain, I call it, their fight or flight, trying to keep them where they are. You know, your your comfort zone is always going to resist getting pushed through because it's, it's objective. The objective of that part of your brain is to keep you where you are, to keep them the status quo. So everything we do that involves change is being interpreted by that part of your brain as threat. So even if you're moving house or if you're going to a different place, never mind getting into a ring, your your comfort zone is threatened because any kind of a change triggers it. But the more you push through it, the higher level your comfort zone becomes, you know, and it just becomes more of a natural thing. And uh, I've never, ever yet had a young person get in the ring and win, lose, a draw and come out and go, I hated that. I never wanted to do it again. Most of the time it's, oh, that was so good. When can we do it next, even if I don't win? Because it's such a big, you know, adrenaline rush and a buzz and a challenge and a, and a step forward and a progression. And it's just, yeah, it's an incredible thing because it's unlike football or any other thing because it's individual. It's just you. It's like you get into the ring. The ring is your world and, and your opponent is just all the obstacles that you face in your world, if you like, as an analogy. And that's exactly what it is. It's not about your opponent. It's about you. And then it's just about whatever strategy you use. But, you know, I've had several occasions, even yesterday, where, where one young fellow was getting in the ring and he saw the other kid had an SA shirt on him. I'm like, oh, he's a state ref. And I was like, he probably just borrowed the singlet, you know, because they're all matched up according to their levels, you know. I had another occasion with a young lad when I worked up in Darwin and we brought him down to the Golden Gloves, you know, in, in, um, in Queensland. And it's great competition because it has levels like you can get matched up at your own level, like novice intermediate. And and this kid was sitting beside this other kid that he was going to be fighting. And the other kid was covered in tattoos. And I was like, he was suddenly really scared of this other kid because he looked dangerous because he was, you know, he was head to toe in tattoos and he'd never seen anybody with tattoos before, you know. So his perception was that he must be good at boxing because he has tats. You know, like, so we get this misinformation and we, we connect because our, our croc brain, our, you know, our fight or flight brain is always going to look for a way for us to avoid or not to change or not to push through.
0: How did he perform against the boy with the tattoos? He won.
2: He won. He won.
0: Masada, it's just one question to finish with, if I could. And what is the legacy that you want to leave as a
1: coach?
2: The legacy that I want to leave, obviously, is my mission is to have counterpunch worldwide, to have as many kids as possible doing it. So I guess my legacy is for, for, let's go. I mean, it's to have counterpunch worldwide. It's it's for young people everywhere to connect, relate, and communicate, and communicate their own potential, like realize their purpose on this earth and fulfill their purpose. You know, and actually just go for it you know when I talk to clients I often say to them you ever watch the movie The Matrix Well, if you can imagine that you're in a different dimension before you're born into this dimension but there's a, you, you have a purpose you have a mission when you get born into this dimension but there's a, there's, there's a, there's a, a clause or a catch and the catch is that when you're born your your, your memory is wiped. So you have to actually discover what that purpose is and and evolve to fulfill it. So you have to discover what it is that you've got stored in your subconscious that you can't remember. So you've got to find your purpose and fulfill your purpose because, you know, for a young person to understand and to realize that nobody is on this earth by accident, that everybody is here for a reason, and that every experience we have up until this moment in time is purposeful whether it's a good experience or a bad experience, there's a purpose behind it and a lesson to be learned. And 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 the learning is, you know, to recognize that, um, to learn from it and to move forward from there towards fulfilling that purpose. Yeah.
0: Masadis, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a wonderful conversation and I appreciate
1: it very much.
2: No worries. It's been a slightly one-sided conversation, but thank you for having me. <laughs>
1: great coaches podcast. Hi, it's Jim. I hope you enjoyed listening to Merck and were as impressed as I was listening to the impact she is having on young lives. What stuck with me most was her description of reality therapy to help you improve how you feel through action. The role of a parent in standing back and allowing their children to experience the consequence of their behavior as a mean to build resilience, and her ways to build self-confidence in young athletes. You'll find a link to Merck's Counterpunch program in the show notes. Coming up next on The Great Coaches Podcast, we speak to Dr Istvan Gergeny. Istvan is a former Hungarian Olympic water polo player and iconic coach, who also coached the Australian Women's National Water Polo Team to the gold medal at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. His hunting territory philosophy on team dynamics and group performance is one not to miss. Players are really very territorial. They want to be exceptional. They want to be the best. They want to score the most goals and so on. But if they are logged into themselves, which is a, the tunnel vision is a, is a characteristics of, of the selfishness on, on the, if, if you really just focus on yourself, it, it means that you don't read others, other players' movements. So you would give short passes or too long or too early or too late passes. So the team is not working well. You, you might be the best player on the pitch, but the team is not functioning. And just before we go, if you have any feedback on any of our episodes, or you know a great coach who has a unique story to share, We'd love to hear from you. You'll find our contact details in the show notes.